The, the installation of elders is one of those things that is so key and vital for a church um, because the tendency is in, in most churches is to have one person we kind of see as a leader and we know from scripture, we know from experience, we know from history that that's not always good. But before we get into our, our series on leadership, one thing that we uh, here at City Church consider important, we want to be real, we want people to understand, know who we are, but we also hold people accountable. And so I was, today I was thinking, you know, people made New Year's resolutions, so we're going to set this up front. At the end of the service, everybody's going to come see how you're doing on your resolutions. No, I'm just kidding. That, was, that, that just came up because it was laying in the back back there, sorry. So, <laughs> excuse my humor, um, or lack thereof. But... You know, as we talk about leadership, I can remember, for those of you who now want to know how old I am, 1980, I had my first job. And uh, I remember going in and getting this job at the drugstore, and for probably the first year that I was at that job, every time the district manager would come, he would continually ask my manager, are you sure he's old enough to be working here. Because at, at 16 years old, I was still like 5'5", five, five, weighed about 110 pounds, and looked like I was 12. Um, matter of fact, I ran a cash register, and the register hit me about right here. Okay, that tells you how short I was. Um, but involved in that, as I worked at this job, by the time I was 17, 18, they were already asking me to be an assistant manager. And I thought to myself, I really don't want to do it, but then again, I, I do want to do it. You know, it's kind of this prestige thing. Hey, they're asking me to be an assistant manager. Now, how many of you have ever worked in retail? Anybody ever worked in retail? You know what assistant manager means, right? It means you work 132 hours a week and get paid for 40. You know, because every time somebody's sick or at least don't want to come to work, they call in, guess who gets to fill in for them? The assistant manager. My first week as assistant manager, my manager took vacation. And I opened, I opened the store at 9 in the morning, because we were in a mall at this store. I opened the store at 9 in the morning, I closed the store at 10 o'clock at night that week. I never left the store, okay? Now, a drugstore in a mall is about the size of a, a big closet. So, you know, it, was, it got kind of old after a week. But the point in that is... Leadership wasn't something that I felt like or that I sat out to strive to do. It just, for some reason, it just kept falling in my lap. I, I quit working at the drugstore, whether that was because I was tired of being a manager or what. But I went to work for a Christian bookstore, started, you know, I'm just opening boxes and putting books on the shelves. And, and so that, that seemed like a good job. I didn't have much responsibility. Nobody asked me a whole lot of questions. But within a year or so, I was the assistant manager, and they were asking me to get into management. So I quit and left to go to school. And so I kept, kept running from this. But it seems like every time I turn around, God brings me back into these positions. But as I think about this issue of leadership, there's a book that came out a few years ago called I'm a Follower. And this guy, Leonard Sweet, very strongly opposes even using the terminology leadership. It's not really in the Scripture very much. He says, we're all called to be followers, that the leader is a first follower. And, and I see what he's saying, maybe a little extreme. Um, but, but the importance of leadership, as we talk these next few weeks, makes me think of this, this next picture right here. 
Now this, this is not a picture of the actual lady. I don't have a picture of the actual lady, but I was the uh, aquatics director at the YMCA in Texas. And so a lot of times I would be the one, so I wouldn't have to make my teenagers get up at the crack of dawn, I would be the one who would open the pool at 6 o'clock in the morning for lap swim. And so we had this little Asian lady who would come swim every morning. And she would take, it'd take her 20 minutes to even get in the pool. You know, she's doing all these flailing her arms and all these exercises to swim. And she would do great as long as she was swimming breaststroke or, or freestyle. But then when she decided to do the backstroke, it was just the funnest thing to watch. Because she would, she would close her eyes when she did the backstroke. And so she would start in this corner of the pool right here by where I'm sitting and she's wanting to swim straight down and straight back, and I'm watching her. And she goes, and she ends up in this corner and hits her head. Boom. And she kind of and she walks down and she gets on this end and starts swimming back. And boom. And she does this for like a half an hour. And I'm just dying laughing because she she cannot swim straight in the backstroke. It just her body will not do it. She's not watching the sky or anything to make sure she's staying in the right direction. She she's drifting. Now I read a book this last week called Mission Drift. And it talks about how easy it is for it and this book is talking about ministries but how easy it is for us to drift away from our purpose. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen usually with the founders or whoever started the ministry. It's just one of those things that as the founder dies and moves on and new leadership comes in, you know, there's, there's these pressures to do certain things and shift certain ways. And eventually there, that mission happens. That drift happens. And so I read a story today of a Bible college that was founded by D.L. Moody. Anybody knows who D.L. Moody was? He was an evangelist in the late 1800s, early 1900s, that founded Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. This week they fired, well, they resigned, their, pet, their president, their CEO, and their provost. And now Moody Bible Institute really doesn't look anything like what D.L. Moody planned when he started Moody Bible Institute. Because it has drifted. And so it's important for us to always understand that leadership, those who are in leadership in the church, it's not a privileged position. It's a responsibility. And that part of that responsibility is to make sure the church keeps its focus on what it's about and doesn't drift and do something else. Because it's real easy to, to do that. Because the world out there, I mean, we're told that we've got to do certain things. We're told that we can't do certain things. We're told we've got to be a certain way. And so we're told we make decisions based on what's the new leadership trend and all those kind of things. Where the reality is the leadership of a church is to follow what this book says. And to guard what this book says. And to guard the people in the church to make sure we stay on the right path. Again, it's not a... A privileged position. I think today in, in today's church, we kind of see the, the, the leadership, and I, I don't, I'm not picking on any particular denomination or group or any, hey, any particular person. Um, but the issue is, we see the, the leadership of the church are usually the ones 
up front, and they're the rock stars of the church, right? They're the ones that everybody thinks they're great. Of course, what have we seen in, in the last few months, in the last couple of years? We've seen a lot of those leaders fall because we've seen a lot of those churches that are no longer doing what they were founded to do because there's that drift. There's this idea that I'm, I'm it. So look at me. Tell, let me tell you how great I am. Now, the role of a pastor, which for those of you who are visiting with us today, we don't have a pastor at the moment. We have a team of elders that are kind of overseeing the ministry and we share the preaching load. But I can remember as a kid, and when I, even when I first went to Bible college, to be a pastor, the main focus you were given was how to exegete or, or draw out from the scriptures what the passage says and to preach it. That was your main job. Then somewhere along the line, you became not just the preacher, but you became the preacher and the local psychologist or counselor. You know, now everybody's coming to the church for counseling. So everybody started taking classes with Larry Crabb and, and, and Jay Adams and all these different ones about counseling. So then now you, you, you just kind of added to your job description a little bit. Then in the 80s, the buzzword that became important was, you need to be a good leader. So now you're the preacher, you're the counselor, you're the leader, which means you've got to come up with the vision, you've got to give direction, you've got to help people stay in that direction, you've got to constantly be excited and optimistic and, and ready to move forward. And so that became the thing. And so now you kind of become that rock star or in a lot of ways, the CEO of the church. And that's not what biblical leadership is about. You say, well, you said it doesn't say leader in the Bible. It does say it, it just kind of says it in a different way. Because see, the leaders of the church are not the bosses. The leadership in the church is not the CEO and the rock star. The leadership of the church has a responsibility to keep the church on its mission to keep in that straight line, to not veer off and bump your head, to stay right where God has called the church to be. And there's a, there's a way that that's done, and it's not from running things. So let's look at Mark chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It's going to be on the screen also. Mark chapter 10, begin reading at verse 35. And we're going to go back and go through the passage in a minute, but let's just read the whole passage together. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, talking about Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, well, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking? Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard of it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to them and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, 
and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, throughout these next few weeks, as I'm talking about leadership, you will, if you've ever read a book that I'm going to talk about, you'll see that, that I'm kind of tainted towards this book. And the reason for that is, the reason, this book is in a notebook. Because this book was given to me in 1981 by my youth pastor. And he said, I want you to read this since at that time I was also becoming one of the leaders in the youth group. He said, I want us to walk through this book together. I've read this book every year since then. So this is 2018, I haven't read it yet this year. So 36 times I've read through this book. And every time I read through it, something new goes, "Ah, you're not doing that right. You need to get this figured out. But the reason it's in this notebook is because I've just worn it out so much. It was, the binding was falling apart, so I put it in a notebook. But you're going to hear different aspects from what this guy says and what I'm talking about. And one of the main things he, he shares over and over again, because the name of the book is Spiritual Leadership, is he says true spiritual leadership, and he gives all these different qualifications throughout the book as to what true spiritual leadership looks like. But as we look at this passage here, let's walk through it together. Verse 35, let's read that one again. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, in the the Gospel of Matthew, James and John, it implies that they got their mother to come ask Jesus this question. That's pretty sad, isn't it? These are grown men. Hey, Mom, (laughs) go over there and kind of rally for us. But if you think about this, first off, James and John more than likely were Jesus' cousins. So they are automatically thinking, hey, we got an inroad here. We're family. We should be in leadership. And also, if you've read through the the Gospels, there are three people that are kind of in Jesus' inner circle. Who are they? Peter, James, and John. Everywhere you go, these three guys are with Jesus. At the transfiguration, they're with Jesus. So all of a sudden, two-thirds of this inner group come to Jesus, kind of circumventing their buddy, Peter. He's kind of left out. Sorry, there's only two sides, you know. The king only has a right and a left, so we're going to go for it. So these two guys come up to Jesus and say, Hey, when you get to your kingdom, one of us wants to sit on your right One of us wants to sit on your left, so we can rule with you. Now that sounds great, but look, if you have your Bibles, look up just a couple of verses ahead of that. Jesus says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days... He will rise. So Jesus has just said, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die when we get there. Just letting you know, I'm going to die. They're going to beat me. They're going to mock me. They're going to crucify me. Three days later, I'm going to rise again. And these two guys go, hey, when you get to your kingdom, can we sit on your right and your left, rule with you? It's like, did you not hear what he just said? He's not setting up a kingdom. 
at least one on earth, he's going to suffer and die. I don't think they really thought, hey, he's going to go suffer and die. Can we be with you in that? I don't think that's what they were thinking. I think they didn't hear a word he said. It went in one ear and right out the other. And they were so focused on ruling with Jesus, being the boss, being the ones who are in charge. So that's what he, verses 36 and 37. He said, what do you want from me? They said, grant us to sit on your right hand and on your left. And so there's this struggle. But then Jesus asked a tough question. He says to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He's basically saying, did you not remember what I just said? You don't have any clue what you're talking about. What you're wanting is to rule, but I just told you I'm going to die. Are you willing to die with me? Are you willing to suffer the way I'm going to suffer? Is what he's saying. And they kind of give a tried answer. Sure. Yeah, yeah, we're willing to do it. We're able. We can do this with you. I'm thinking, did you not hear what he said? He's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles, mocked, spit upon, crucified. Oh yeah, we can handle that. But then he says something unique to them. He says, you know what? You're going to. You're going to drink from the cup that I drink. You're going to be baptized with the baptism. He said, you are going to suffer. Matter of fact, James has his head cut off very early in in the history of the church. He takes a stand, and Herod says, that's it. Cuts his head off. John is boiled in oil, but lives through it. And so because he lives through it, he's exiled to the island of Patmos and has to live the rest of his life by himself. Probably in not a lot of comfort since he was boiled in oil. So they did suffer. But at this point in time, they're not thinking that. They're not saying, I'm willing to do this, because what they're saying is, I'm willing to get what I want. I'm willing to be one of the leaders with you. Now, verse 41 uh, is kind of, I think it's funny. It says, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. I like that. You know, the other guys were going, hey, wait a minute. What makes you special? Why do you think you get to be the leader? I've heard that. I've been in churches. I've had people look me in the face and say, what makes you special? Why are you in leadership? And sometimes I have to go, I I don't know. It's not anything special. It's just the way God's brought it about. It's just the way things have happened. But I've had people ask me that. See, because the issue comes down to the leaders are the ones who are the rock stars, right? And how come I'm not being the star? I want to be the star with you. And so these guys are going, hey man, this is not fair. And I think of the ten, it doesn't even mention Peter. I'm thinking Peter's going, hey, wait a minute. You guys just ran an end around around me. There were three of us in this group, and now the two of you have kind of just left me out and gone on. But they're upset. And so Jesus pulls them all together. And begins his lesson. He said, Jesus called them to him and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, 
and their great ones exercise authority over them. He says, you know, you're thinking of leadership the way the world does it. And it's not going to be that way. See, I think some of the, the biggest danger, in my opinion, and I, I say this as someone who is working on a degree in leadership, so trust me, I mean, I'm talking to myself here, is that we focus so much on our pastors and the leaders of our churches knowing how to be good leaders, and we take the model that says, this is how Steve Jobs did it, this is how Lee Iacocca did it, this is how... True, Kathy did it to become great leaders in their companies. So that's what you need to do to be the leader of the church. Don't matter whether you understand and know the Word of God or not. That's really not the point. As long as you can be a good CEO. And Jesus says, you know what? You're doing the same thing. You think by looking at the way the Gentiles rule and lead, that that's the way you want to do it. But it's going to be different. Verse 43, but it will not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. He uses two different words there. We use kind of servant and slave interchangeably. But the word servant is from the where, where we get the word today, deacon. And it, that was kind of, she's fine. It's not bothering me at all. Um, the, you know, the, the word deacon, and so the issue here is those people who serve tables. Think of your waiter or waitress at the restaurant. They are a servant. Now, they're getting paid for it. Some of the servants in the, the New Testament got paid for their job. Or they were at least doing it to pay off a debt. And so he says, you know, you're called to be a servant. Which go, you go, man, that's bad. But then he goes one step further. But you're going to be the slave of all. He uses a totally different word. In the book of Numbers, in, verse 20, in chapter 21, there were slaves who had sold themselves into slavery, but along the line they decided that they loved their master so much that when the time came for them to be set free, they chose to remain as slaves with that master. They said, I want to stay where I am, basically probably thinking... I'm just going to get myself back into the same situation when I get out here. I love my master. I want to serve him. And they would take them to a door frame. And they would take a nail. And they'd put their ear against the door frame. And they'd take that nail and drive it right through their ear. And they'd put an earring in. Not because it was fashionable. But because it was a sign to everyone that I am committed for the rest of my life to this master. That was the word Jesus uses here. He's saying you're totally in. If you're going to be a leader in my ministry, you're going to serve and you're going to be the slave that says I'm all in. Whatever it takes, I love my master, I'm going to do whatever I need to do. And then Jesus goes on to say, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, you know what? I'm here to serve. I'm not here to, to rule. I'm here to serve. And he, he alludes to a passage in Isaiah. Bring that up. I'm going to have to read it up here on the screen. because I don't have... It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, 
He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He says, not only have I come to serve, but I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. Alluding back to Isaiah 53, which was the prophecy of the Messiah who would suffer and die. It says here that he, he takes the iniquities so that the people can be called righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He became sin for us so that through him we might be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He took our sins upon himself. He didn't just come to serve, but he came to take sin upon himself to die. Remember earlier when he asked John and him, are you willing to, to drink of the cup that I'm willing to drink of? Most commentators believe that cup refers to what the Old Testament is the cup of God's wrath. That when Christ took the sin of the world upon himself on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out upon him. That's why he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took our sins upon him so that we could have his righteousness. And he's saying, I'm doing all that and you're still wanting to be next in line. You're wanting to be ruling with me. You're beginning to, you're misunderstanding. What is Jesus' view of his kingdom? Galatians 5.13 says this. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's what it means to be part of the kingdom. That's what it means to be leaders in the kingdom, is that we are the ones who serve the most. Or at least that should be what happens. Because leadership is not the issue. The, le- the issue is service. Scripture doesn't say, look at Moses, my leader. He says, look at Moses, my servant. And so, so we need to, to keep this idea. Now, there's something we need to understand from this passage. First off, leadership is God's choice. Leadership is God's choice. He says here, that to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. See, we kind of prepare ourselves to be leaders now. We go get degrees, we go get training. We, we, there's more focus, unfortunately, in a lot of seminaries now on leadership training than there is on biblical training. Because we learn how to be good leaders. But J. Oswald Sanders in this book says this, No theological training or leadership course will automatically confer spiritual leadership or qualify one for effective ministry. Some of the most godly men I've ever met didn't have a degree in leadership. Didn't have all the training that it took to be 
the good leader and the good CEO of the church. They were men that when you prayed with them, you were afraid to move, afraid you were going to bump into God because they were, they were, they were talking to him. And you knew he was in the room with you. And you're, you're, you know, these were men who were godly men. And so we need to be careful. We need to understand that, yeah, there's issue. You know, we, in this process of getting elders, we had a selection process. But the thought and the reality of that is the people who were nominated for those positions were already serving in those positions anyway. It's just the the congregation kind of recognized that. Because God was already working to, to bring those leaders together. And so it's God's choice. And that seems kind of unfair. Seems kind of like something that would make you feel kind of good about yourself. God chose me. But it's really more the idea of giving you the strength you need to be the leader. J. Oswald Sanders says this, To be able to affirm, I am not here by selection of a man or the election of a group, but by the sovereign appointment of God gives great confidence to the Christian worker. I've got friends of mine that serve and are church planters and pastors in churches around the world. Many of whom, every time they talk to someone about the Lord, they're putting their life in danger. Every time that they plant a church, they're taking the risk of going to jail. See, the leader, the person who is chosen by God for that position, needs great confidence that comes from understanding that God's placed me here because they're the ones who are going to take the junk. They're the ones who are going to constantly hear the complaints. They're the ones who are constantly going to have people say, well, I just don't want to go to that church anymore because you said something and you hurt my feelings. Or they just never know because the person just never shows back up. They're the ones who, when things don't go exactly right, who gets blamed? You know, you don't hear when churches have issues, you don't hear, boy, that congregation's terrible. You hear that pastor is terrible. Because you're the one who gets hurt the most, to be honest. Because everything in you wants to see people grow and be what God's called them to be. And when they choose not to, it rips your heart out. And so he says we need to understand, because it's only that confidence that comes that God's put me here that gets you through some of those times. I was a pastor for 15 years at a church. When I went there, I was the fifth pastor and the church was four years old. Okay, I tell people I took over an orphanage being run by the children. And there were some meetings where I walked away thinking, what on earth am I doing? Why am I here? Nobody wants me here. <laughs> what, you know, what's the point in this? There were times when good friends, I had a good friend that I had eaten Thanksgiving at his house for years in a row. That when we got into a little bit of a financial struggle as a church, he proposed a budget that cut my salary totally out. Not even cut my salary a little bit. He just, we're just not going to pay you at all. And I said, man, what are you thinking? 
Well, you should have enough faith to live by that. <laughs> okay, well, let me call your boss. Tell him to fire you or at least just take your salary away and you have enough faith to go to work and let him pay your salary. You know, I mean, you know, it just doesn't make sense. But it's a good friend. This is somebody who I had poured out. This is somebody that I had been walking through the woods at four o'clock in the morning looking for his son who had run away from home. This was a good friend that I buried that same son when he overdosed on drugs. This is somebody I had poured out my life to who says, oh, we can just cut Wade's salary. No big deal. That hurts. Those kind of things rip your heart out. And if you're not confident that God has you there, then it's easy to go, you have it, man. I don't want this anymore. So we got to be careful. We need to also understand that leadership involves suffering. Jesus says, I came not to serve, be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. You're going to bear the cup. You're going to have to deal with the baptism. You're going to have to deal with the pain. These guys that have stepped up and that God has called to be elders of this church that I'm, I'm having the privilege of getting to work with and develop and to, to, we're going to install them in a few weeks. These guys have, even the last year, have had a lot of junk thrown at them. They've had a lot of pain. They've had a lot of hurt. But they've hung in there because they're committed to the Lord and they're committed to this church. They're committed to you. And so suffering, it's going to happen. You know what, though? Jesus gives an example. In John chapter 13, it says, Jesus, knowing from where he came from, basically understanding his position in the Father, understanding that God had placed him there, took up a towel and began to wash the disciples' feet. Now, I've seen in today's world, you know, we do the same, you know, everybody has a foot washing ceremony. I don't think that carries the same idea. Most of the time it's, hey, look at me while I wash this person's feet. Aren't I good? Um, You know, but the washing of the feet was that doulos, that, that slave that says, I'm the lowest of the low. I mean, you think about the jobs. Would you rather serve somebody's table or wash their feet. I mean, the, the serving the table may be a little bit of a menial task in your mind, but, but washing feet, man, that's, just, you know. And we're not talking about feet that came in with socks and shoes. We're talking about feet that came in in sandals walking through dust and dirt and, and lime and all kinds of whatever else is on the ground. And he showed an example. He said... In that later on in that chapter, I have set this as an example for you. Not to go out and wash people's feet, but to serve. He set the example of service. And then 1 Peter 2.21 says that he set the example of suffering. He suffered for us. He died for us as an example. So the question comes down to, is it wrong to lead? Is it wrong to be in leadership? I mean, Wade, you've pretty much painted a bleak picture of leadership this morning. You know, should we ever desire to be a part of that? 
Well, there's two opposing passages in Scripture. In Jeremiah, it says, you aspire to leadership for your own name, don't do it. But then 1 Timothy says, if you aspire to leadership, it's a good thing. There's that balance. If you want to be a leader so that everybody can look at you and say, aren't they great and they're a good leader, and boy, they they get the nice salary and they get the, the rock star status, then you're going about it the wrong way. Is it wrong to study leadership? I sure hope not, because I've been spending the last five years of my life working on a doctorate in leadership. I, you know, I hope, if, man, if it's wrong, I've just wasted five years and a lot of money and a lot of grief. Um, you know, but the issue is, it comes down to what it's all about. To serve others. It's a hard attitude. It's a matter of saying I'm not here so that everybody can look at me as to how wonderful I am. I'm here to serve. And if nobody ever even recognizes who I am, that's okay. Because we can all name the pastors of the big churches here in the U.S. The mega churches. We can name them. Why? Because they're on television. They're on the talk shows. They write all the books. But you know what? They make up about 3% of the churches in the United States. 97% are people that you'll never know their name. Some of them in churches of 10, 15, 20 people. And those are the only people who know their name. But they're serving the Lord because that's where God has placed them. And their service is just as important as the one who's on TV with 10, 15, 20,000 people in his congregation. So is God calling you to be in leadership? And that may not be that you become an elder at the church. And maybe he's calling you to be a leader in your home. And maybe he's calling you to be a leader at your job. Maybe he's calling you to be a leader of a volunteer ministry here at the church. But if he is, it's not so that everybody can look at you and talk about how wonderful you are. It's that God has called you to serve and to suffer. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much.